0: are lots of marine toxins that are harmful to humans. Saxitoxin, tetrodotoxin, and conotoxin are just some examples. They can produce rapidly progressive neurological disease with loss of air protection and apnea. So quite serious poisoning. And climate change and global travel mean that poisoning caused by marine toxins will become more common in the future. To help us learn about marine toxins, we have Dr. Jacob Lieben, who works in emergency medicine at the University of Washington School of Medicine. So welcome, Jacob, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, happy to be here.
0: Great, and Jacob, the first question is, can you tell us what exactly are marine toxins?
1: Absolutely, marine toxins represent a diverse group of compounds that are produced by marine flora and are potentially harmful to humans. They generally cause harm by direct ingestion or contact with the toxin from the marine flora.
0: And how would you recognize an affected patient? What symptoms and signs might a patient present with?
1: Sure. So in general, patients are going to come in with very nondescript symptoms, which makes the diagnosis very difficult. In general, most patients will come in with some form of neurologic symptoms. The most common would be oral numbness, dysphagia, dysarthria, and they also can come in with GI symptoms such as nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. Some patients may also describe generalized weakness and a sensation of floating is often described by patients.
0: Okay, great. And is there anything particular in the dietary history or travel history that you should ask about?
1: Absolutely, and I would say that is key for providers to know about. The, the diagnosis is made entirely clinically based on the, the history obtained and the physical exam. And so it's very important that if a patient presents from an endemic area where marine toxins are present, that the provider ask about potential exposures. That would be, have you come in contact with marine flora that have these particular toxins? Or have you ingested seafood that may have been contaminated by these toxins?
0: Okay, great. Thank you. And, and what particular endemic areas are, 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 are these toxins most common?
1: Sure, in my area uh, near Seattle, Washington, it's a very common place. So we have them along the West Coast here, ranging from Northern California through Washington State and up through Alaska. I've also seen reports from the Northeast. And then there's also uh, many marine toxins present in Oceania off the coast of Australia and Indonesia.
0: Okay, thank you. And the the various toxins that I I mentioned at the start, those three different types of toxins, do they all cause a similar type of clinical picture?
1: They can, but they're distinct in terms of what creatures produce them. So saxitoxin is the causative agent of paralytic shellfish poisoning, uh, and those are caused by ingestion of contaminated shellfish. Tetrodotoxin causes a similar symptom, but is caused by mainly two different creatures one being pupperfish and one being the blue ringed octopus. And then conotoxin is produced by a certain type of snail found in uh, Oceania that produces conotoxin.
0: Okay, great. Thank you. That's, that's very clear. And having taken a history and examined your patient, what, what tests might you request or, or would tests help you make the diagnosis?
1: I think that there are two two main approaches to this. One is going to be that the diagnosis of marine toxin abominations from these particular toxins is entirely clinical. So there is no specific test that you will be able to obtain when the patient initially presents. And that's important for providers to recognize. In general, testing is targeted to rule out other causes of similar presentations. That would be things such as stroke, gastroenteritis, and then other types of neurologic presentations, multiple sclerosis, yann barre syndrome, other symptoms of respiratory failure, such as pneumonia, things like that. So I would say that targeting your diagnostics to rule out other types of etiologies would be my primary goal when patients come in with this presentation.
0: Okay, thank you. And in moving on to treatment then, what's the mainstay of management of, of these conditions?
1: Mainstay of management is supportive care. There is no specific antidote or treatment that will reverse the symptoms of these types of toxins. What providers need to do is, one, provide respiratory support. If their respiratory muscles begin to fatigue and have generalized weakness, that may require endotracheal intubation and supportive care with a ventilator. In general, then, it's going to be monitoring. So appropriate monitoring will be important to predict whether or not a patient will need the, that type of intervention. So it'll be having them on pulse oximetry, possibly capnography, uh, and then having them in a place where providers and staff can monitor them to observe whether or not their course is worsening.
0: Okay, Th- thank you. And isolation measures, can people pass on the toxin to somebody else?
1: No this is something that comes from direct contact or from ingestion most commonly being ingestion if there is contact it tends to be in the form of a sting uh, which is not communicable between people
0: okay thank you and i guess need for a referral depends on the severity of the poisoning is that correct
1: that would be correct For most patients, the provider can call a a local poison center or public health official who can oftentimes direct over the phone the types of intervention and testing that can be done. If the facility has the means to intubate the patient and place them on a ventilator, in general, they'll be able to keep them there at that facility. If they do not have adequate abilities to manage airways uh, or intubate them, then I would recommend that they be transferred to a facility where that can be done if they are having symptoms suggestive, that they have impending respiratory compromise.
0: Okay, thank you. And is reporting of the poisoning necessary? And and if so, how should you do this?
1: I think that reporting is key. And that's because the, the diagnosis requires both the history and the physical. And so having the history that other patients have been poisoned in the area or you're seeing an uptick in saxitoxin or tetrodotoxin from a particular area is really important for the public to know and important for providers to be able to match it with the history that's coming in to their, their clinic or their emergency department. So I think that calling providers either at a poison center or a public health department will be important for everyone to be able to recognize appropriately whether or not there's an outbreak.
0: Okay, thank you. And, and what do patients... And their families want to know, and and what advice uh, might you give them?
1: In general, these types of uh, poisonings last for about 12 to 24 hours. They tend to be rapid onset and can become more severe within the first one to two hours. But most patients tend to do well with supportive care and make a full recovery. There are a certain subset of patients that do have generalized weakness that can last for months afterwards, but I would say the vast majority of people will do very well afterwards and will have no long-term sequelae.
0: Okay, thank you. And, and back to the subject of differential diagnosis, you mentioned stroke or gastroenteritis as being potential differentials. Is there, is there anything else that the physician should consider?
1: So I would break them down into two separate syndromes that you can see with toxins. So one is the neurologic symptoms and one is the GI symptoms. So for the neurologic symptoms, I would say that stroke would be my number one concern for a patient coming in with any sort of neurologic symptoms. I would also consider something such as botulism toxin, ciguatera toxin, or tick paralysis if there's a history to suggest such. In terms of the GI symptoms, in general you see nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. So etiologies such as food poisoning, viral gastroenteritis, or food allergy can also be common.
0: Okay, thank you, that's, that's very helpful. And moving on to pitfalls, I wonder what are the common pitfalls in the diagnosis or, or management of these conditions?
1: The most common pitfall would be not considering the diagnosis and that requires a provider to have some understanding of whether or not they live in an endemic area and whether this has been reported before. So if you live in an endemic area, you can find that out by contacting your public health department or poison center. It's important to consider this diagnosis at the very beginning not to say that you should anchor on it and only treat for it, but certainly having it on the differential allows providers to think about whether or not this could be a marine toxic poisoning.
0: Okay, great, thank you. And, and what other questions, besides the ones that I've asked you up to now, do you typically get asked about these diseases by doctors? And, and what are the answers to these questions?
1: The most helpful thing that people ask for, they, go, I, they would like a level. They wanna know what the toxin is and that can help them make the diagnosis. And I agree with them that getting a level is very helpful. The problem is that laboratory levels are unavailable commercially for most patients. And if you do have access to a lab, it generally is a send out to a lab that's not within your regional area, and it can take two to three weeks for the lab to result. And so while providers may request to have lab work done and have a level obtained, it can be done, but it will not be available to guide you in the treatment of the patient. And so it re- requires the provider to take a very good history and then to treat the patient supportively without that piece of data.
0: Okay, great. Thank you. And and final question. If, if you had one single piece of advice to give to a healthcare professional about these toxins and the illnesses they can cause, what would it be?
1: I would say that providers should remain aware of what's happening in their community. There are times in the season, particularly in the summer with warmer waters, and as you mentioned earlier, global warming, where these types of events are becoming more common. Things where you have red algae blooms brown algae blooms that can make these types of poisonings more common. So having providers be aware of what's happening in their community can give them a heads up and therefore they can correlate it with the patients that they're seeing.
0: Okay, thank you very much Jacob and thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful and we hope that you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better recognize, report and refer affected patients. If you do want to find out more, Click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and BMJ Learning and look at the content on this and other serious diseases. Thank you once again. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and rate us on iTunes.